The ancient Hebrew scriptures begin with these words. Berashith, bara, Elohim, et hashamayim, ve'et haaretz. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I believe those words. But I'm thinking of a man who has spent his life seeking to disprove them. He's the most widely published atheist today. I've read his debate with a Christian scientist named Francis Collins, a geneticist who helped map the human genome. Fascinating debate. I listened, I watched hour and ten minutes worth of his debate with a Christian theologian, Alistair McGrath, who himself was once an atheist. And I must tell you, I've been very impressed with this man's civility and gentility. Obviously a very bright mind. I'd like to make his acquaintance someday. I would like to meet him, become a friend of his. Although it's true, his writings can be acidly sarcastic and border on ridicule at times. A ridicule that he justifies by quoting our president, Thomas Jefferson, this biting observation of Jefferson's, ridicule is the only weapon which can be used against unintelligible propositions. I don't agree with that. I don't agree with ridicule in a civil conversation or apologetics at all. Nevertheless, while I disagree, I would like to get acquainted with this thoughtful man, although I have a feeling he doesn't suffer Christian friends lightly. I'm speaking of Richard Dawkins, the eminent English biologist, self-proclaimed atheist, and I have here in the pulpit with me his newest book, The God Delusion. International bestseller. So I got the book, thanks to a gift, over the holiday. I said, I want to know what makes this bright mind think. How does he reason? So I'm reading the book. And imagine my surprise, in the first 100 pages, to come across two references to his tears. Richard Dawkins' tears. I want to read those references to you. First reference here, when he was just a boy. Listen to this. In another time and place... The boy could have been me, he's talking about himself. Under the stars, dazzled by Orion, Cassiopeia, and Ursa Major, tearful as a boy, tearful with the unheard music of the Milky Way, heady with a night sense of frangipani and, and trumpet flowers in an African garden, a quasi-mystical response to nature and the universe. I remember as a boy crying. The second reference is in his preface to the, to, the, to the paperback. The hardback came out a year ago, and then just this last year they came out with the paperback. And so in the new preface, he's writing about a, an English physician that has read The God Delusion. Okay? So having read The God Delusion, Dr. Avid Ashton, a British consultant physician, wrote to me on the unexpected death on Christmas Day 2006 of his beloved 17-year-old son, Luke. 
Shortly before Luke's death, the two of them had talked appreciatively of the charitable foundation that I'm setting up to encourage reason and science. At Luke's funeral on the Isle of Man, his father suggested to the congregation that if they wished to make any kind of contribution in Luke's memory, they should send it to my foundation as Luke would have wished. And so the 30 checks received amounted to more than 2,000 pounds. That's about that's a little over $5,000, including more than 600 pounds from a whip-around. That would be passing the hat in the local village pub. This boy was obviously much loved. Now, listen. When I read the order of service for the funeral ceremony, I literally wept, although I had never met Luke. And I asked for permission to reproduce it on my website. A lone piper played the Manx Lament, Ellen Vallon. Two friends spoke eulogies. Dr. Ashton himself cited Dylan Thomas's beautiful poem, Fern Hill, which includes this line, Now as I was young and easy, under the apple boughs, so achingly evocative of lost youth. And then he writes, I catch my breath to report. He read the opening lines of my own book, Unweaving the Rainbow, lines that I have long earmarked for my own funeral. The tears of an atheist. I must admit that I have obviously succumbed to a caricature that atheists don't really cry. Obviously, the heart of every human creature can be moved to tears by the, by the mystery of beauty, by the finality of death. So where do they come from? These tears over beauty, these tears because of sorrow. Are they the protracted byproduct of an ancient chemical cocktail? Or could they be the expression of the lineage of the Creator and the highest intelligences on earth? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Open your Bible with me, please, to the most oft-quoted, surely the most well-known line of all of ancient Scripture. Seven words in the Hebrew, ten words in the English. Open your Bible, please, to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Christmas Eve, 1968. Some of you weren't even born. Three astronauts aboard the Apollo 8 spacecraft peered out their cockpit windows onto the blue-green planet in the distance, and they quoted these words over a live transmission to the world. Read them with me. You didn't bring a Bible, pull out your pew Bible. You won't have a hard time finding this page number. Because it's one. Pull out, your, pull out the pew Bible if you didn't bring one, because we're going to be here for a moment. Genesis 1.1. Read these words with me. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. One short line that has become the prologue to all divine revelation and the premise for all human faith. I want to tell you something. That point is so critical. That is the, that is the new baseline to this series that you and I are embarking upon today. So important is that line that I want you to take your study guide out right now and jot it down, please. Get your study guide and let's go. Thank you, ushers. Let's do this very quickly. I'm talking about the balcony. I'm talking about the back of this sanctuary. Got a full church here. Just make sure everybody today gets a study guide. And while they're doing that, those of you watching on television, we're delighted to have you. 
I hope this series will stir your own soul up as well. Go to our website. Let me put it on the screen for you. There it is, www.pmchurch.tv. That's our website. The series is called The Sabbath. The title of this first teaching, The Refreshing Delusion. King in on Richard Dawkins' book. You'll see study guide there. Click there and you've got it. The very same one we have. I want to make sure you have it. Everybody, help. just keep your hand up. They're moving from the back forward and forward back. But we're not going to wait. Please fill it in. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created. Those are the two words. Fill them in, please. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Here comes our baseline now for this new series. One short line that has become the prologue to all divine revelation and the premise for all human faith. Fill it in, please. By the way, prologue premise repeated often in Holy Scripture. Let's put it on the screen. Let's take a look at uh, Psalm, the 33rd Psalm, verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. Drop down to verse 9. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. It's the baseline for all divine revelation. Take a look at the New Testament. This would be Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. In the beginning, here's the point, the baseline. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So here's the question. What if you don't believe those words, huh? If you don't believe them, then like Richard Dawkins, the logical conclusion is the God delusion. But there really, you think about it, there is no third. There is no middle ground. You can't have a half a God and a half a creation, a half a creator. That's simply not an option. In fact, Dawkins, amazingly enough, this, this, listen to this. He makes the case that regarding God's existence, there really is no such logical state of mind called agnosticism. He said you can't have it. You can't be an agnostic when it comes, you know, well, maybe I'm not quite sure that God is. I'm not quite sure that he's not. So I'm going to take this little in-between approach and I'll call myself an agnostic. But Dawkins argues, and I agree with him, I think rightfully, that an agnostic notion that the hypothesis of God's existence and the hypothesis of his non-existence have exactly equal probability of being right is an illogical, illogical deduction. Either he exists or he doesn't exist, Dawkins asserts, and I believe he's right. Consequently, ladies and gentlemen, there are, on, there are only two worldviews when it comes to the origin of the human race. Only two. Jot these down. Number one. In one worldview, random nature rules supreme. And that's why this view is called naturalism. If you haven't gotten it yet in your university journey, you'll get it. It is a prevailing, it is a prevailing worldview of this secular America and the planet. It's called naturalism. Nature rules supreme. Charles Darwin's origin of the species is its most widely circulated advocate. And atheism is its resultant philosophy. It's just the natural philosophy. Of course, I don't believe there's a God. There are only two. So that means the other worldview. By the way, the other worldview is the oldest worldview. It's the one that teaches the divine creator rules supreme. And it's called supernaturalism. Super is from the Greek word huper. 
and it means above and beyond. So there's somebody above natural. It's somebody above nature. And that somebody is a divine intelligence and creator. The Holy Scripture is its most widely articulated advocate. And write it down. Theism. The belief in God. Theism is its resulting philosophy. Keep your pen moving. Genesis 1.1 declares that the worldview of a divine creator is the only authentic expression of reality in this universe. That's the declaration of Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There is no third worldview regarding origins. Either God created the universe or he did not. Either he exists or he does not. Norman Gully, in the first volume of his new systematic theology, Prolegomena, which I'm wading through, makes this observation. And this is fascinating. And I want you to hang on to this one. Authentic theological method. All right. The, the authentic way of studying Holy Scripture. Authentic theological method turns the Cartesian method... I just let me hit the pause button here. Cartesian, that's from Descartes. That's, that's René Descartes. He was a French mathematician turned philosopher. He's the one that came up with a whole, a whole wing of philosophy. And you'll know which wing in just a moment. The authentic theological method turns the Cartesian method upside down instead of, and here's what Descartes came up with. Instead of, I think, therefore I am. You remember hearing that? I think. I'm using my brain. That means I exist. Instead of, I think, therefore I am, true theological method says, God is, therefore I think. And oh my, that is powerful. God is, and therefore I think. Gully goes on, Scripture says in the beginning, God, Genesis 1, John 1, the Bible begins with God, he writes, and presents a movement of God to humans rather than the reverse, end quote. Ladies and gentlemen, the point is, the human saga is not the tale of man inventing God. It remains the shining saga of God creating man and woman in his own rational image. God is, therefore, I think. Which means atheist and theist alike draw our reasoning powers from the God who is. The creator God, by the way, who wrote a straight into his story. We're in his narrative. The majestic narrative of Genesis 1 is God moving step by step closer to his earth children. We're not going to read Genesis 1 through. But let me read the, the opening verses here. Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form. Verse 2. And void. And darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then, verse 3, God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, verse 4, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light, verse 5, day. And the darkness He called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. The Hebrew there literally reads, evening was, morning was, day one. Please note that God began with darkness and then created light. So biblical reckoning of time ever begins with the dark part of the day and it's followed by the light part of the day. Evening first, then morning. And by the way, I wish you'd jot this one down. The, the Hebrew word for day is yom. We talk about yom kippur, the day of atonement. 
Yom means day. The Hebrew word for day is Yom, which when it is attached to a numeral, as it is 150 times in the Old Testament, always, every single time, except for Zechariah 14, 7, it refers to a 24-hour, write it in, 24-hour period of time. You say, what's the big deal about that? I, I make that point. Because some have suggested that Moses was, was really describing these eons of time in each, each creation day. When in fact, Moses wrote exactly what he meant. Each of the creation days was 24 hours long. So let me give, let me, let me give you the Reader's Digest. This is the shortest you've ever gone through Genesis 1. I'm going to give you the Reader's Digest version of creation week. 24 hour day one, God created light. 24-hour day two, God created atmosphere. 24-hour day three, God created land and vegetation. 24-hour day four, God created our solar system. 24-hour day five, God created birds in the air, fish in the water. 24-hour day six, God created mammals for the land. But he wasn't done. Now he becomes the creator intensely personal. As with his own two hands, he shapes a new order of intelligence into being. He personally sculpts a male and a female and then announces, it is in the combination, and by the way, please note that, it is in the combination of the two that the image of God is reflected in this creation. Wow. And when he's done day six, go to the end of the chapter. Look at this. Verse 31. Day six. Then, verse 31, God saw everything that he had made. And indeed, it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. You know, God is just like any artist. I mean, come on. You make things, don't you? I, uh, when I was here in the seminary, I got into acrylic painting and then... You know, over the years, I've picked it up, put it down. I've gotten into watercolor since coming here. It's, you know, <laughs> I do a little splashing on, on, on that uh, hard paper and I put it on that easel and I step back. You know, and artists do this. You just look at it and you say, man, this is good. <laughs> and then Karen walks by and disabuses me of that entire notion. <laughs> and your friends say, what is on this thing? I mean, please, you call that art? Every artist knows the feeling. God looks at the planet six days and he says, yes, this is very good. I want to read to you a beautiful piece from a writer named M.L. Andreas in his surprising book, The Sabbath, which I read over the holiday. Where has this book been? I don't know. Let me read this to you. All right. He's right. God could have done many things in creation differently from the way he did had his nature and purpose been merely utilitarian. Hey, I want the whole planet. Boom. Adam and Eve. Hey, nice to meet you. I'm the one, by the way, who just called you into existence. Day one's done. Couldn't he have done it that way? But of course, could have. When men want light or darkness, they turn a switch on or off and the desired effect is immediately accomplished. Hey, by the way, Adam, you want dark around here? I put a, I put a big switch right down near the equator. You turn the switch down, the lights go out. When you're tired of the dark, turn it back on, you get light. Just like that. Couldn't he have done it? But of course. But what's he do? Oh, this is good. God could have done the same. 
But He chose another way. The slower way. The way of beauty and wonder. Slowly, He caused the light to fade. And the heavenly artist shows what can be done with the dust of the earth and the mists of heaven and the light that comes from His appointed luminaries. Take a look at that picture. That is a sunset over the North Pole. And then, and then He mixes these ingredients in the laboratory of heaven and displays the result to man in the sunset. No switch. I'm going to do it slow so you can watch it and hold her hand the whole time. You think about this God. He goes on. The God who causes a million flowers to bloom unseen. I mean, what a waste. Do you know that there are patches across this earth where no human eye will ever witness the glory of wildflowers? Nobody's going to see it. What a waste. You know, there's this old phrase. You've heard this. If a tree falls in the forest and there's nobody there to, to, to hear it, does it make a sound? I got a better one. If a, if a little blossom sp- springs into life somewhere on earth and there's nobody there to see it, is it really beautiful? Somebody says, too bad I'm the only one that gets to join, enjoy this one. Unseen. What kind of a God is this? That's Andreasen's point. The God who who causes a million flowers to bloom unseen, who places the pearl in the ocean. Do you know how many pearls that never get picked up? He who places the amethyst among the rocks, he must be a lover of beauty. Whatever God does, he accomplishes in the most exquisite and beautiful way. No wonder that man is asked to worship him. I love this. Not in holiness, but in the beauty of holiness. He loves beauty. I love it. Carl Sagan also, he was an atheist astronomer. In his book, Pale blue dot is quoted by Dawkins. I want you to listen very carefully now. How is it, this atheist astronomer, he's asking this question. How is it that hardly any major religion, that would include Christianity, has looked at science and concluded, this is better than we thought. The universe is much bigger than our prophets said. It's grander, more subtle, more elegant. Instead, these major religions say, oh, no, 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 no. My God is a little God and I want, to have, I want, I want him to stay that way. Sagan goes on, a religion old or new that stressed the magnificence of the universe as revealed by modern science might be able to draw forth reserves of reverence and awe hardly tapped by the conventional faiths, end quote. Isn't that amazing? What is up with you guys? You believe in a creator? Is that it? I mean, maybe if you who believe embrace the wonder of the natural world, maybe, just maybe, you could tap into the reserves of reverence and awe in the hearts of those of us who do not believe yet. Thus Dawkins, by the way, entitles his chapter, A Deeply Religious Non-Believer. But could it be, ladies and gentlemen, that the reason we believers have left Atheist scientists sadly shaking their heads and bemoaning our utter disregard for the beauty and mystery of nature, our crass ignorance regarding the glories of the natural world and the universe, our loss of wonder over the discoveries of the physical sciences around us. Could it be 
that the reason in incredulity they shake their heads, could it be that it is because we who believe have forgotten that the creation week is not just six days long? Could it be that nature and her sciences no longer summon the, the, the awe and reverence within us because we have forgotten the seventh day of the Creator. Genesis 2, you're right there. Thus, verse 1, the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. Verse 2, and on the seventh day, God ended His work which He had done, and He, and he rested on the seventh day from all His work which He had done. Verse 3, Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it He rested from all His work which God had created and made. My friend Samuel Bakioki, in his book, Divine Rest for Human Restlessness, notes the fascinating detail of how masterfully woven into the creation narrative is the number seven. Jot these down, will you? This is, this is fascinating. Genesis 1.1, I already mentioned this, is seven words in the Hebrew. Genesis 1.2 is two times seven. It's 14 words in the Hebrew. The three nouns, keep your pen moving, in Genesis 1.1, that would be God, heavens, and earth, appear in multiples of seven throughout the creation account. One of those nouns appearing 35 times in the account. The expression, it was good, jot this down, occurs seven times with the seventh time declaring it was very good. Genesis 2, 3, 2, 2, and 3, keep writing, which reveals that the seventh day is composed of three... Now, let me start over on that one. Genesis 2, 2, and 3, which reveals deals. Why don't I just read it off the screen? It's bigger. <laughs> I hate small words. Genesis 2, 2, and 3, which deals with the seventh day, is composed of three sentences, each seven words long in the Hebrew, with the middle phrase being the seventh Day. Keep your pen moving. From the beginning of time, seven has been the expression of completeness and perfection in both biblical and Near Eastern literature, which being interpreted means, one more sentence for you, the, that the only, only through experiencing God's gift of the seventh day, only through experiencing God's gift of the seventh day, can our humanity find the completeness we have been destined for in our Creator. And that's why, by the way, it's called the seventh day in Genesis 2 and not the Sabbath day. I mean, some people look at Genesis 2 and say, ha, look, there's no Sabbath there. There's nothing wrong. Just talking about the seventh day. Oh, my friend, you were absolutely right. But did you know that that was by design? Divine design. Listen to M.L. Andreessen again. I think you have this one in your study guide. 
Why is it by divine design? Had Genesis 2 merely said that God blessed the Sabbath day, some might think that it referred to any day on which the Sabbath might come. And that if the first day of the week should be chosen as the Sabbath, the blessing, could have, blessing would apply to that day. To forestall any such interpretation, God states that he blessed the seventh day, not the first or the third or any other day, but the seventh day. Hence, the seventh day is a blessed day. End quote. Which simply means that no man, no church, can transfer the divine gift to another day. I mean, this is, not, this, this is not rocket science, ladies and gentlemen. You can't move the seventh day around. Why? Because if you move the seventh day around, it's no longer the seventh day. It has to stay the seventh day. That's God's point. Because if it's no longer the seventh day, it's no longer God's gift day. And to abandon God's gift day of the seventh day is a first step to abandoning the giver along with his gift. Get it? It's no wonder Dawkins and Sagan puzzle over why the religion of Christianity no longer displays a reverence and an awe for the mystery of the universe. The seventh day gift day has been abandoned. That's why it's been abandoned. Genesis 2.2 And on the seventh day, God ended His work which He had done and He rested on the seventh day from all His work which He had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it He rested from all His work which God had created and made. Come on, guys, you think about it. God could easily have chosen a six-day week. I mean, who's, who needs, in a perfect garden, who needs rest? Six is over. Let's go back to one. Do it again. He could have. You think about it. God could have said, no, 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 let's do it this way. I want to have an annual celebration. We will celebrate the birthday of the world. I'm going to give you the date. And every year when we come to this day, we celebrate I'm the Creator. He didn't do that either. He could have had a monthly festival. Let's, every month... We will get together and we'll celebrate creation. The creator of creation. He didn't do that either. Apparently, what the, what the creator is longing for cannot be put off for a month. It cannot be put off for a year. He's got to have it every single week. Something, something within him says, we've got to do this every seventh day. It's no wonder Exodus 31, verse 17 reads like this. And on the seventh day, God rested. And now you know why the words are there. And was refreshed. I mean, what, what, what are you refreshed about? You didn't work that hard. You know what refreshes him? Obviously, the God of the universe is refreshed by relationship. Obviously, he says, this is what refreshes me. Write it down, will you? It is the most perfect gift that any loving parent can give to his or her child. The gift of uninterrupted, unhurried time together. Hey, listen, think back to, think back to when you were a kid. Huh? Put the old rewind button in gear. Think back to when you were a kid. What is it that you remember about your childhood. Some toy your dad gave you, is that it? Is that, oh boy, I remember that toy. Or was it the time that your father gave to you? Huh? 
My dad was a preacher. And a great one at that. When we were living on the west coast of Japan, at the foot of the Japan Alps, he was planning a church in a large city with almost zero Christianity in it. Planting a church. So you can understand, he is working night and day. One day, one night he comes home and he announces, I've been thinking it over, and we're going to have a family day together, and we're going to take Tuesdays as our day. Oh, there was celebration in the Nelson tribe. Tuesdays. Because, you see, we were homeschooled. And that meant in the spring and in the summer and in the fall, on Tuesdays, we could pack a picnic lunch and head out to the beach every single Tuesday. Or we could go for a bike ride every Tuesday. Or we could visit every museum in town. We could do anything we wanted because on Tuesdays, Daddy is home and we're together. And that means, by the way, and these are my fondest memories, that means that when it became winter... On Tuesdays, before the sun was ever near to coming up in the pitch dark, we crawled out of bed, packed a little lunch, got in the car, drove to a train station and rode that train up high up into the Japan Alps. And we skied together all day together. Now that my father is dead. I got to tell you, I look back wistfully across the years to the memories of that time Dad gave to me and my kid brother and sister uninterrupted, unhurried time every single week. He didn't give money, he didn't have much. He didn't give toys. We were rather poor. But he gave something even better. He gave himself in time. And that's what I will remember until I die one day. The very same gift our Creator gives to you and me every seventh day. 24 hours. Slow, slow down, slow down. 24 hours of uninterrupted unhurried time with Him together. And He gave it, by the way. He gave it to the entire human race. If Genesis 1 is about the creation of the human race, then Genesis 2 is about the seventh day as the divine gift for the human race. You can't separate the two chapters. Which is why the Creator, when He was incarnated in the flesh, our Lord Jesus Himself spoke these words. Fill it in. Uh, Mark chapter 2, 27. The Sabbath was made for humankind. And not humankind for the Sabbath. Keep writing. For you see, from the very beginning of time, the seventh day has been a gift day from God to the human race. 24 hours of uninterrupted, unhurried time together. With him. Which, ladies and gentlemen, leaves me with two questions. I shall end with these questions. Question number one Why would I ever, why would I ever want to get rid of the seventh day Sabbath? Why would anybody want to get rid of the gift day? And question number two Why would I ever? Be hoping that the seventh day would get over 
For in the words of Abraham Heschel, the seventh day is like a palace in time with a kingdom for all. Let us pray. Oh God, 24 hours of uninterrupted, unhurried time together with You. Why would I ever want to get rid of the seventh-day Sabbath? Why would anybody? And why would I ever want the seventh-day Sabbath to get over? For if the seventh day is like a palace in time with a kingdom for all, And surely, O God, it is the best gift of all, for it is the gift of You to all, for which we thank You with all our hearts. Amen.